Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 30th of June. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, banking at the core of Australia's economic crisis and not a monster. Watch the Putin interviews. Now Craig, before we start though. Um, fake news Robert. Fake news. fake news. We have to uh, retract last week's fake news. And the fake, the fake news to which we're referring is our announcement last week that it was our last show on Channel 31. Because uh, the Channel 30, the, the free to air, the free community TV community in Australia is getting yanked around by the Turnbull government, you'd have to say. Um, everyone was in the, who broadcast shows on Channel 31 was told that would be the end, 30th of June, it's all over. And at the last moment, Mitch Fifield, the relevant minister, has sent out a message saying, no, there's another six-month reprieve. We had a reprieve six months ago in January. Now they've given us another one. So we will be on the air on Channel 31 in Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth for the next six months. All right, so keep watching us if you watch us on Channel 31 or, Channel, or Digital Channel 44. And I think what we might have to do, Craig, is start making a bigger deal to the uh, agitate more to the Turnbull government, that this is ridiculous. Yeah, and there's no, there's no good reach. Community, no. community television is an important service and they should scrap their plans to get rid of it. Mm. Right, because whatever they're planning to do with the bandwidth, it ain't happening, no. <laughs> that's for sure. All right, so there's the uh, community service announcement for the day. Sorry about the fake news. But it's a good news story. All right, let's start. Banking at the core of Australia's economic crisis. Craig, what we're seeing at the moment is the economic threats in Australia or to Australia are intensifying. So let me just go through some of them. The first one is a biggie, actually, if you understand the significance of it. The Bank for International, well, the Reserve Bank has has reported that Australian household debt is now at an all-time record of 189% of household income, and this is close to a global record. Right? The economies like America that tanked in 2008, they weren't anywhere near that level of household debt. Mm. Right? This is a serious, serious problem in Australia. The Bank for International Settlements, on the back of these figures, has warned that Australia is therefore very threatened by any sharp rises in interest rates. Mm -hmm. Because when you've got that amount of debt, that's, you know, you can't ha this is all at record low rates. This debt has built up as rapidly as it has. Um, if, there's, if there's sharp rise in interest rates, people are going to crumble under that. They're going to buckle. Now, is that possible to have sharp rise in interest rates? Well, uh, first thing, interest rates are starting to go up around the world. The banks, the, the Reserve Bank here isn't raising them, but the private banks are starting to raise them because the private banks get about a third of their funding, not from deposits of Australians, but from overseas, and around the world interest rates are going up. So they are having to pass that on here. In the United States in the last year or so, there's been four rate rises, right? Mm -hmm. Official rate rises. And that's where they're generally heading. A former member of the Reserve Bank, John Edwards, shocked everybody yesterday. Now, he's pretty well known, this guy, John Edwards. He's, um, like I said, he's formerly on the Reserve Bank board. He used to work for Paul Keating when Paul Keating was Prime Minister. He wrote Paul Keating, one of Paul Keating's biographies. He came out yesterday with a shocking prediction that there could be eight rate rises in the next two years. Now, I just mentioned this fact to a, a 
businessman in Australia, Craig. And he said, no, 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 there can't be. And what he was saying, he can't predict they're not, there won't be. But the point is, the way our economy is at the moment, there can't be in the sense that if that happens, we're smashed, mm -hmm. right? Our economy could not handle those type of interest rate rises. And of course, he's spot on. Um, so that has a knock-on effect to, it's not just a general issue with the debt that Australians have, it's the specific issue of mortgage debt that it's gonna, that it's gonna cause problems with. We have a property bubble in Australia, which is huge, which is out of control, absolutely out of control. In Melbourne and Sydney, price, you know, prices have no, bear no resemblance to reality whatsoever. They are completely unaffordable. People are borrowing huge amounts of money to buy a home at record low rates. We reported on this show a few weeks ago, some figures that said that a, a rate rise that produces even a 100% a month increase in mortgage repayments will push a lot of people over the edge. Mm. Just 100 a month, $100 a month will push up people over the edge. So forget eight rate rises, mm. right? Um, and of course, if that happens, if, if you get that kind of uh, hit to the property market, which collapses the property bubble, we will lose our banking system. Our banking system will be absolutely smashed on the back of that. That's a prediction that we've been making here for a long time. It's just based on the maths of the exposure the banks have to property. Which is about 60% of their assets, which of course are mortgages in property, are uh, 60% well of their assets are, are mortgages. So Whereas in, in the 1990s, it was, it was less than 30%. Yeah. So right? 60% now. And that's, yeah. the, that's the highest in the world. And a huge amount of exposure to overseas borrowings. At least 60% of their borrowings overseas which are re-lent are, you know, are going to be affected by higher interest rates and therefore yep. that's going to flow in through their system of trying to recover that so they're going to have to increase rates which of course look this can set off a chain reaction Robbie as you're saying but on the other side of things you've got the shutdown of the physical economy I mean I was shocked which will have another imp which will have the I same was, flow I effect. saw an announcement this week that Telstra is laying off another 1500 workers well let me go through some of the details of that because yes rate rises could smash the property market Job losses could smash the property market. So there's 1,500 from Telstra. Most of those, by the way, Craig, are going to be in Victoria, New South Wales, where the property bubble is still raging, right, which is interesting. People forget, because the announcement was made a while ago, that it's in October this year, 2,500 Toyota workers at Altona will lose their jobs. They are high-paying jobs, those jobs at Altona and here in Melbourne. A th more than 1,000 workers in at Holden in Elizabeth in South Australia will lose their jobs. Both those plants are shutting down in October, right? These are the best paid jobs in, in industry in the country. That's going to be a huge hit. That's going to have a knock-on effect. And there was a study just on the Holden job losses that those thousand jobs in Elizabeth, when they go, are going to cost 12,000 more jobs in the feeder industry that had been servicing the Elizabeth plant, right? Um, so these are huge problems that are confronting, they're all threat, they're, they're threats to the Australian economy. Then there's one more threat which we have to mention because it's, it's the most ridiculous one but it's, it's very, very um, uh, intense right now and that's the energy crisis in Australia. Our self-inflicted energy crisis and it has to be self-inflicted because we've got the world's most coal, we've got the world's most uranium, we've got the world's most gas and yet we cannot have affordable electricity or reliable electricity. And this, has, this, is, this is having a knock-on effect. I'll just read you some of the examples. Uh, 
Back in March, Rio Tinto announced that its Boyne smelter in Gladstone will have to cut production because it cannot afford the power that it's being at the at the rate it's being supplied. Right, um, and 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 Rio Tinto said uh, the it, it would be a fourteen percent cut in production. They'll have to do well. That's going to affect workers up there. Uh, Glencore is talking about its copper operations in Queensland being affected the same way. Uh, CSR is considering closing its building materials and glass making factories. Brickworks, the country's largest brick maker, might also be forced to close because of the unreliability and the, and the unaffordability of electricity. And Blue Scope Steel's Paul, boss Paul O'Malley had, quote, warned of an energy catastrophe unless new baseload power generation is built to replace older coal-fired power stations. And so these are, this is industry after industry after industry is affected, but these are the people who employ us, right? And that's all going to have a knock-on effect to the, um, to the general economy. And as I said before, that's entirely self-inflicted. And it's also, Robbie, something that's going to take years to get out of. I mean, you, don't, you can't just erect a power station to, to deal with an energy crisis, right? It takes years to build a power station. Therefore, what's been set into motion now with the energy price rises and the, sh the, the shortages that we're coming into for the lack of enough electricity has been put into place from policies that have been um, you know, propagated for the last 30 to 40 years. Yes, and so, starting with privatisation and then the green stuff. So, you know, Turnbull's you know, scramble to, to deal with the gas shortage by dealing with, you know, reining in export gas and so forth. Well... That's like an emergency measure to deal with something as a result of these neoliberalist policies that have crashed in the recent period. And I think it's absolutely stunning that the biggest growth sector, Robbie, is not in any way actually producing goods, yep. but is in banking and finance. Yep. Well, let's take a break and we'll get onto that subject straight afterwards. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing banking at the core of Australia's economic crisis. And before the break, we were talking about all the, th the mounting threats to Australia's physical economy from any number of things, including debt, rising interest rates, job layoffs, and energy, the energy crisis. Um, so Craig, just before we went to a break, you mentioned the, there's one growth sector of our economy, which is really good, so it's, you know, ostensibly, um, and that's banking. Yeah, I, I, Robbie, I, I've got this image in my mind of this huge bubble with these people sitting on the top of the bubble. Yeah. Because what's going to happen to those jobs when the bubble bursts? Of course. They just disappear. They're not real jobs. They're not real jobs because they're not producing anything. So this is, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics' latest national accounts, the biggest sector of our economy is now finance and insurance. We'll put a graph up on the screen that shows the change between, in 20 years, between... 1986, sorry, 30 years, between 1986 and 2016. So in 1986, more than 10% of our economy was manufacturing. Now that's down to just above 5%, whereas banking and finance has gone from less than 5% of our economy now to more than 9%. Those figures show 8%, but it's actually more than 9%. Um, and what blew me away about this report, Craig, that how banking and finance is now the biggest part of our economy, is that it's a bigger part of our economy than it is even of the UK's economy, right? 
This is, and the UK is the biggest, City of London is the biggest financial centre in the world. So years ago, in, in his biography, Paul Keating, there's a, there's a reference there to how Paul Keating was at the Reserve Bank building in, in um, Sydney. He looked out over Martin Place and he said, I want this to be the Wall Street of the South. Well, he's got it. We are the Wall Street of the South, but at what cost, right? Look at the industries that we've sacrificed to get there. And we actually have, um, experts have been warning for years that the growth in finance is actually not a good thing. And I can tell you why in a word, because it's a parasite, right? If the parasite's getting bigger than the host, well, the host is about to die. But I'll quote a few people. Um, in 1984, the Nobel Prize winning economist James Tobin, who put forward the idea of a Tobin tax to tax financial transactions, which is a good idea done within a nation, he warned then in 1984, he said, quote, we are throwing more and more of our resources, including the cream of our youth, into financial activities remote from the production of goods and services that generate high private rewards disproportionate to their social productivity. In other words, these are really high, they're the highest paying jobs in the economy and the most useless. That's, that's a paraphrase of that, right? This is what we're seeing in our economy. And one of the members of, in 2014, Joe Hockey set up this financial system inquiry and um, it had a, a few members on it. One of those was a, the, um, a Melbourne University professor, Kevin Davis, who was the chief economist on the financial system inquiry. I met him um, at the time when we went to the Melbourne meeting of it. Um, he told the Australian the other week, he said he was worried that, quote, too much of our valuable resources have been invested in the financial sector. He said, it's not clear that things like trading and asset management in particular necessarily add value, unlike more standard intermediation of depositors and borrowers, which he means normal banking. So if finance was just you putting your money in the bank and the bank lending that to you to buy a house or to a small business to invest in plant and equipment, that is good for the economy. But trading, right, or the kind of stuff where, you know, stock market transactions, etc., all you're doing is changing the ownership of assets. They're not actually producing anything there. Um, and when that starts to dominate your economy, it becomes a big problem. Um, now, it has to be said, Craig, that one of the reasons, therefore, that there's an obsession with banking, a political obsession with banking in Australia now, where the government's just put on a bank levy, right? Everyone's bashing the banks, is actually because of this problem. They have become a target because they are such a big part of an economy that otherwise is collapsing. And of course, South Australia is the latest government to say, okay, we're going to do it too. We're going to whack a levy on the banks and I'm, you know, good on them, right? But my question to you is, is a levy on the banks going to solve this problem or is there another way to solve the problem? <laughs> well, Robbie, let's go back and talk about Glass-Steagall. But look, whilst, before we go back there, I mean, it astounds me that this same issue keeps coming up again and again and again. Because Go back to the 1920s Great Depression. You know what the reason that depression occurred? It was because you had these things in the US in particular called broker loans. Yep. Now, the broker loans were where the banks would lend people money to buy into the stock exchange. The stock, they buy shares. So they were buying up to 95% of the value of their shares. And by 1929, something like nearly $100 billion was lent, like in a speculative bubble, 
towards buying these shares. And of course that would inflate the share price, but there was nothing actually being done yeah. by those companies to actually produce the value of those shares. So it was all pure speculation. So what happened in 1929, in October 2029, was a massive crash because people realised that you know, this, was, this was a bubble, it, it fell apart. So this was pure greed, it's pure speculations. The banks were right at the heart of it and it caused the massive Great Depression from 1929 all the way through to the, you know, the, the, the early 40s until Roosevelt uh, effectively got out of that through a whole means of, a whole, whole process. But what he had to do, um, when he came, when he was inaugurated on the 3rd of March, 1933, all the stock markets were shut down, all the stock exchanges were shut down. 46 out of the 48 states had declared bank holidays. There was no banks open, Robbie. So they, when he, they demonstrated that the that banks could shut. Yeah, and, and he, when he was talking about the great speech, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, he was dealing with a population that had no banking system, no access to funds, had lost hundreds of millions of dollars of mm. their savings because you know uh, all the banking system had closed, but something like 5,000 banks went belly up, Robbie, at that point. So when he came in, he was dealing with the, 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 the rot, the detritus of the banking system. He said, we've got to deal with this. And that's why in uh, June of 1933, the Glass-Steagall Act was, in, was passed by Glass and Steagall, which then separated out and quarantined, protected the normal commercial banking system. That is useful. Which is very useful and necessary. That's your mortgages, your deposits, your loans and so forth from this highly speculative side the investment in merchant banking. And it was supported by the peoples. It actually was supported by some of the big banks themselves because they had so lost the plot. Mm. They destroyed the American economy. And upon that basis, you know, Franklin was able to Franklin Roosevelt was able to build through his New Deal and the injection of credit into the real economy through the Rural Reconstruction Finance Corporation, he was able to reconstruct in a very powerful economy, which then with the war mobilization turned America into an absolute Powerhouse, and that's what we need here today. Yeah, but see, the, the, there's a mindset, Robbie, of very clear-cut leadership that Franklin Roosevelt had. Mm. It's the same sort of leadership that we had in this country with Curtin, uh, and actually people like uh, Essington Lewis, the the head of BHP at that time, but also General MacArthur. We had a triumvirate back in the war years that had a very clear sense of how to put Australia's economy on the rails, and it meant putting the banks in their in, in a box, yeah, containing did. them. Mm, that's right. Well, and that's a good history. You can watch. And you, you can read, and to do that, one of the things you can do is there's a presentation on our YouTube site that Craig gave to a conference a few years ago that's worth um, watching on some of that history. And also call in and get yourself a free copy of the CEC's Australian Alert Service where we cover some of that history as well. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Vladimir Putin. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Finally, not a monster. Watch the Putin interviews. Um, so Craig, this is a very important little segment of the time we've got left. For the last decade and a half, the centrepiece of the global tensions has been Russia and secondarily China, um, though some people can't make that up their mind on which is the worst, versus the West, right? Especially the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and we get drawn into this stuff with China a lot. So, and in that picture, the one person who has been the subject of the most propaganda, the most slander, the most vitriol, the most demonisation is Vladimir Putin. 
right? He is presented as a monster. And if you watch the media reporting when they talk about things that Russia does, if you just took Putin out of the picture and just heard what the latest thing Russia has done, it's all very normal until you include the factor that Putin is sinister, mm. right? If Putin wasn't a sinister character, then that, then that action would be perfectly normal. But because Putin's a sinister character, somehow that's sinister, right? So anyway, the great filmmaker Oliver Stone, and we call him great, although because he's done some films that really challenge people, including JFK. Go and watch that if you haven't watched it. He's cut through all this with a series of interviews with Vladimir Putin over the last three years that have just been broadcast in the United States and in Australia here on uh, SBS on Sunday nights. And you can watch, I'm, I'm promoting this so people go watch it on SBS On Demand. If you haven't seen them, go and watch them. There's four hours, four episodes, four hours of interviews. And he's done these interviews so people can see Putin answering his questions and judge for themselves, right? So we're going to play a little clip here of Putin answering Oliver Stone's question where Oliver Stone raises Senator John McCain, who regular viewers of this show will know that I carry on about a lot as a very demented person. So just watch this. And uh, it seems if Senator McCain, for example, today or yesterday was proposing a veto, a Senate veto of any lifting of sanctions from Trump in advance. Putin is a killer. There was no moral equivalence between the United States and Putin's Russia. I repeat, there is no moral equivalent between that butcher and thug and KGB colonel and the United States of America, the country that Ronald Reagan used to call a shining city on a hill. На самом деле он для меня даже немножко симпатичен. Да, 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 я не шучу сейчас. Он симпатичен мне своим патриотизмом и своей последовательностью в защите интересов своей страны. Но вы знаете, вот в Древнем Риме был известный Мар, Марк Порций, значит, старший, да, который все свои речи заканчивал, с чего бы ни начинал, одним и тем же. Карфаген должен быть разрушен. Да. Значит, люди значит, с такими убеждениями, как сенатор, о котором вы, которого вы упомянули, они живут еще в, в старом мире и не хотят взглянуть в будущее, не хотят понять, как быстро меняется мир, не видят реальных угроз и не могут переступить через свое прошлое. Она все время тащит их за собой назад. Мы поддерживали борьбу Соединенных Штатов за независимость. Мы были союзниками в Первой мировой войне, во Второй мировой войне. Сейчас у нас общие угрозы, связанные с международным терроризмом, с бедностью во всем мире, с деградацией окружающей среды, которая реально угрожает всему человечеству. В конце концов, мы накопили столько ядерного оружия, что это тоже стало угрозой для всего мира. Нам бы не мешало об этом немножко подумать. Нам есть над чем работать. So that's the kind of mindset, Craig, that Vladimir Putin has. Robbie, what struck me from watching all these programs is that Vladimir Putin is totally uh, endorsing a policy of sovereignty. Yeah. Now, I've talked about a lot on the show where you know, sovereignty of nation states, respect for the sovereignty of peoples is crucial. And you just see this very sharp delineation between how America treats countries and people and how Russia looks at it. And I think... I mean, if people have a bad view of Putin, it's because they believe the fake news and the media. Go watch it for yourself. Yeah. SBS, for Australians, it's on SBS On Demand for the foreseeable future. Go watch it. It's a lot very of good important. jokes in there too, Robbie. I read, yeah. No, exactly, Craig. 
Anyway, we've run out of time, so thanks for joining us, yeah, Craig. Thanks, thanks for tuning in. Ch keep watching us on Channel 31 and tune in next week for more.